Hi, this is ETF.com's Exchange Traded Fridays podcast, a weekly podcast covering developments in the ETF industry. My name is Sumit Roy, and I'm Senior Analyst for ETF.com. This week, I'm talking with Angus Shillington, the Deputy Portfolio Manager for the Active Emerging Markets Equity Strategy at Vanek. Angus, great to have you on the show. Hi, great to be here. So, Angus, you recently wrote that within emerging markets, the India story really stands out. What makes investing in India so compelling to you? That's a huge question. I have always believed, and I think the data supports that belief, that India is a great investment. Certainly when you look back, and I don't think a lot of people understand this or take the time to to understand it, the performance has been astonishing. Um, over 10 years, um, it's pretty much the same return in US dollars as, as we've seen in, in the United States. So I think to date, it's you know 160% up for the S&P and it's 150%, I think, for India. But if you look over 10 years, India's returns, again, in US dollars are almost twice as much as you've gotten in, in the S&P. So that, that would be my first point. And then the second point, if you think that's good, um, I think what's happening right now in India in terms of sort of social um, digitization reforms probably makes that better. Um, I think that's that that's sort of the core of my my thesis or belief. So that's interesting. And um, what's driven those strong gains you mentioned, you know, matching the U.S. Uh, over the past decade, outperforming the U.S. over the past two decades? Is it the, the GDP growth we're seeing, the demographics? Because we've seen, you know, strong GDP numbers in other emerging markets, and it doesn't necessarily always translate into strong gains for stock markets, right? Yeah, and I think I think that's really sort of the crux of this conversation we're going to have. That you know, GDP doesn't necessarily result in in returns, um, and you can really sort of go back quantitatively and assess that over time. And and the cohort of Indian businesses, like in the US, have compounded value, right? So on one hand, you can have a company, sorry, a country with a large GDP. And then the other hand, you can have the companies in the index um, not deliver value to shareholders. Um, that is not the case with India. And I think that's where it's important to start the conversation in the past. And I think if you want to sort of look at it through the lens of why has the US been a great market? And I think good GDP, good demographics, uh, India maps that uh, with probably slightly higher GDP, which probably talks to the 20 year number. But I think the important thing is the cohort right, th that makes up the index, and indexes are sort of living creatures, right? So the better companies get better, and the worse companies get less good, and the index tends to represent over time the collection of the best companies, right? So for in the US, it's it's obviously a large cohort of innovative, oligopolistic businesses with great brands, moats, pricing power, and they grow nicely over time in compound value. That's pretty similar in India. So I think that's really the sort of the, the 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 core of the conversation here is that you want to invest in a company that is not only exposed to a country that's growing and a demographic that's positive, but you want the companies within that index or ETF or a single company to actually deliver real dollar accruing value to a minority. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? Yeah, that's a great point. And I want to get more into how to invest in India and things like that in a minute. But before I do, I was reading through uh, some of your tweets, and I know you visited India not too long ago to take a look at, you know, what's happening on the ground. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, 
some of the changes that are happening over there, major policy shifts, infrastructure buildouts, things like that? My big takeaway, my big observation was the opportunity appears to be larger than I thought it was. And I already had a pretty uh, optimistic scenario built in. Yet the appreciation of that appeared to be the same or less. And I think this is an important point that as a country is developing and it, you know usually along the same patterns as a developed country right so if you think about the lens that we see the us a lot of what india is doing right now we have experienced in the us now with some very positive factors by being a last mover and coincident technology and that kind of stuff but i think that was my real observation on the ground now you don't need to go on the ground to really sort of track policy and and you know modi came in nearly 10 years ago you know he won on this sort of platform of growth of eradicating corruption of you know taking care of everybody in india right and you know what I saw on the ground and what I sort of see even looking in from the US is those policies have been astonishingly successful. So, and I think the way to look at policy is how it builds, how it accrues over time. And as you layer policy on top of policy, what is the sort of outcome? What's the compound effect? And, you know, the policy really started with slightly before him with identifying uh, people in India digitally. So thumbprint, retina scan, you know, who is everybody? And I remember seeing that it was shortly before Modi came in and thinking, oh my God, this is this is huge. This is game changing because if you can actually identify a person and answer the question who, it's very similar to, you know, GPS in the US answering the question where, you can start to do a bunch of very valuable functionality on top of that. So he then took that, ran with it and used that to, to do what he called the policy called Jandan. Jandan was everyone had to open a bank account, right? Super easy to KYC yourself, walk into bank, thumbprint, retina scan, and you got a bank account and you got a little bit of money for doing it. And then he demonetized, meaning that all the cash in this sort of previously cash economy, which was really not helpful in a couple of ways. One, high cash economies are low tax compliance. So, you know, the fiscal budget was, was underpowered. And then the other one is just like the ability of cash and corruption, you know, allows corrupt governments to buy elections. So, Demonetizing meant everyone got their money in the in, in, in the banks, and anyone who had um, money that they'd either stolen or, or or gotten by corrupt means had to burn it because if they put it in the bank, they were in trouble, right? So that was the next one. And then on top of that, we built tax reforms, and on top of that, bankruptcy laws. So bankruptcy laws and tax reforms, you know, compressed overall cost, allowed businesses to scale nationally rather than locally because the previous chaos of sort of local, super local you know, taxes that were partly corruption, all stuff made up nonsense disappeared. And you saw one visible taxation platform. And then as time went on with new bankruptcy laws, the banks could clean themselves up, um, you know, creating more credit for the economy. And then I guess the last piece is when you sort of pull all that stuff together, uh, you've now digitized transactions. Um, you digitize transactions, your tax capture goes up, the fiscal budget improves. You know, last year, and most interesting, and this is my last point, is, is 2022, tax revenue growth. So let's say uh, tax revenue growth was twice as fast. So in percentage terms, it was twice as fast as GDP growth. So if you let that sink in and think about it for a moment, if you're getting more in than the economy is growing, then your budget is growing quicker. And you take that budget and you build infrastructure. And once that infrastructure is in place, you suddenly find tra transport logistics and the whole thing is a flywheel. Um, so that, that, that in a nutshell is, is, is what you know, we see happening. Um, is So taking that difficult, somewhat broken, problematic, corrupt economy, which 
has delivered great stock market returns because of the companies, the quality of the companies. And now you're creating an environment where these companies can outgrow um, quicker with higher quality. Um, there's more credit in the economy. So it's a big, big flywheel and, and it's extremely exciting. That's some great color. So it, it certainly sounds like all the stars are aligned for India, Angus, but one of the big concerns that I hear investors talk about when it comes to investing in India is valuations. Can you talk about what valuations for Indian stocks currently look like and how that compares to other stock markets around the world? Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe I'll take the second point first, because I think that relative value construct is doing investors or potential investors a real disservice, right? Because saying that China is cheaper than India or Brazil is cheaper, I, I'm not sure. That's not really the point, right? The point is, what is this opportunity set in isolation? And I kind of think about it like a sort of an automobile analogy. You know, if your pension was earned by driving you know, 20 times across the country over time, and there was a pot of money at the end, and you were offered uh, you know, a brand new Mercedes, which was a little bit more expensive, or a sort of five-year-old, I don't know, Kia, um, I would take the Mercedes because it would give me a smoother ride, probably better speeds, more reliable, and you know, pretty much guaranteed it would get there, and I could probably sell it at the right price. The other option, you know, who knows if you're going to make it or not. So I think it's about, you know, deconstructing the opportunity. Um, and I think that part of this exercise is academic, right? So what have you been paid in the past? What are you going to get paid in the future? So that's a bit of an analysis thing and an academic data thing. And then the question is, what are you getting paid to take a specific set of risks? So I think that's sort of the construct I would think about it. Does that make sense? And, uh, you know, I'm happy to, to, to drill down into that in, in, in some detail. No, I, I love that. I love that analogy. Uh, and it makes a lot of sense to me. So what about in terms of absolute levels? What are we talking about uh, when it comes to India valuation? Okay, so let's let's start with, you know, what do you think is the appropriate multiple? Because I think that's 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 the piece that, that I think people need to assess for themselves. And I think in doing that, you say, okay, academic, what is what is multiple? Okay, multiple is the cost of the opportunity. So the opportunity deconstruct that into, well, it's the volatility, right? So volatility of India, not that far off the US. If you look at 90-day vols over 10 years, India's 14, US is 13, China's 24. So clearly, you know, the India risk piece kind of aligns with the US rather than than, than most of the other EMs. So that's number one. And then, then number two, you look at at, at at the return structure. So what are you getting paid to take the risk? Um, and that's when I think you really sort of things start to get super interesting and, and again, somewhat misunderstood. So, you know, a basic, I kind of tend to think of, of return and equity as a basic sort of shorthand for, for, for opportunity. So what, what, you, what, what, what is it any company or any index paying you um, over time? Now, the US is over the last, I think, 30 years is, is somewhere in the sort of 14 handle. That's gone up relatively recently. I think it's now somewhere in 16, 17. India, uh, average of 16, so comfortably above the US, although that range has, has come down in the last sort of five or 10 years for various reasons, mostly around the investment in the opportunity that's building out. But that's now around the sort of 13, 14 range. Um, China uh, has averaged you know, 10, 11 over time, which is okay, but that's fallen sharply over the last 10 or so years. So it's sort of in the eight or nine range now. So here's what you got so far. We built out volatility, about the same as the US, are much less than than, than China and, and, and less than, than a bunch of the others. So it's different. So let's say 
that relative piece is already looking out of sync. Um, the return on equity, India looks a lot higher. So again, out of sync. So let's sort of zoom in on, on, on the accrued sort of returns piece. And this is where things get kind of super interesting. So uh, a friend of mine, uh, RJ Kapoor at Bank of America did a wonderful study, again, looking 30 years out, which is sort of where the data kind of starts and sort of try to understand what an index paid you, right? And he found there really were only three indexes in the world, I say in the world, that actually investors accrued value over time, over that period of time. Um, they were the United States, obviously, um, India. Um, and the third is slipping my mind, I think it was Denmark, but it was one of those Scandinavian countries, but literally only three. Now his measure was relatively simple. He said, okay, let's look at top line growth. Let's look at how much sales and revenue all of these businesses and these indexes over time make. Let's look at how much that is growing. And then let's, let's, uh, let's look at how much of that ends up in EPS. So what is paid to investors as accrued returns. Um, and, you know, those numbers were pretty staggering. Over time, you know, India turned about 14% of growth into EPS of about 8 or 9%. So, you know, comfortably compounding and accruing over time. US, not far off those numbers. China had higher sales, um, but with negative average returns over time. So, again, just talking to the quality factors in the India market. So, now let's sort of drill down to multiples. And I think that's that's the sort of the money here. India trades in a range, again, not dissimilar to the US, which is sort of surprising, I think, to a lot of people. At an aggregate level, um, it's about a 20 handle forward PE. The range is sort of 15, 25, uh, but the median around 20. The US, about the same. Um, uh, China, somewhat less. So we're getting back to this sort of relative thing. So I think now we've sort of established quality, growth, cohort of great businesses in India, not dissimilar to the US, uh, other EMs, not so much. So I think we, it's time to throw out the, the relative piece and sort of back to how do you drive across the country several times. I think you know you want to look at an investment, the investment of your savings as a ride, right? How do you want to take that ride? You want to take a ride that's comfortable, that's reliable, that's capable of higher speeds. Um, and if you do, then you're going to have to pay a slightly higher multiple. So the last piece in this, and then, then I'll throw you back to you, is, is, is this sort of notion that there are very expensive businesses in India. Yes, that is in fact correct. Um, some of the sort of higher quality consumer businesses trade at like nosebleed valuations um, and they have performed pretty well. But I think transposing a handful of businesses that are expensive into this sort of notion that the the market itself is expensive, as I say, does investors, I think, a pretty significant disservice in keeping them out. And I think, you know, like any investment, we would always encourage individuals to do their homework, to look at the data, to understand the opportunity. And when you sort of, rather than taking somebody else's biases or, or throw away comment that may not represent the whole, and uh, you tend to find that this isn't the crazy situation in terms of, of, of multiples and risk that are being outlined. It's a, it's a market that has delivered great returns. It's a market that has a cohort of businesses that deliver significant annual returns to shareholders. And, you know, the price multiple is not that crazy. So I, I think that's, I say, I'm, I'm trying to sort of really sort of deconstruct my personal approach to valuation. And I think you've got to be fairly analytical about it. 
And and when I do it, I don't get that concerned. I, I you know, constructing a portfolio gets a little bit more difficult. Maybe we can talk about that as we go on. Yeah, super interesting. I really appreciate you giving us that deep dive into India valuations. It certainly sounds like you can, you know, justify uh, uh, these higher valuations compared to other uh, emerging markets. Um, so Angus, you are obviously with Vanek, a firm that offers dozens of ETFs, you know, targeting all sorts of asset classes and geographies. How does Vanek offer investors exposure to India? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So it's a work in progress. Uh, we have a couple of ETFs out there right now. One uh, is called Digital India, which is has a ticker DGIN, uh, relatively new, uh, performing pretty nicely. What that is, is, is a slice of what our ETF guys and, and believe is the opportunity presented by digitization. Now, this is, again, where you can draw an analog of the United States that, you know, we have been through digitization. We saw this thing play out and we saw this sort of group of incredible businesses that pre-digitization didn't exist the googles the the sort of facebooks and, and, and amazons and you know we have a belief that those kind of trends will present themselves and those kind of opportunities will present themselves so this this vehicle is a long-term exposure to those kind of things um and then we have a, a one called the, the india leaders fund so G, the, the ticker is g-l-i-n um we slightly adjusted the we slightly adjusted the uh, objectives of that um, a couple of years ago. So the performance bit is a little bit weird, um, but that's aimed at really picking uh, the leaders, uh, the leaders going forward. And I think that somewhat you know we're trying to get to an investor value proposition that, especially in EM, has been problematic over time by broad indexes. So. India's sort of index churn hasn't been that huge in the past. Um, I think the index churn will probably become very much more material um, as digital disrupts um, in a similar way that we had in the US. So in the GLIN ETF, what we're trying to do there is, is, is make sure we have as little exposure to failure, if you want to call it that, for the guys who get disrupted and as much exposure as we possibly can to, to success. So I think, you know, one of the problems we've always had, and, and, you know, this has been particularly problematic in emerging market ETFs, um, is this notion that, you know, you buy a broad index and you're buying, you know, a slice of failure and you're buying a slice of success. And, you know, the longer run sort of friction of the first over the second doesn't give you the returns that you would expect. So those, those are the two exposures we have right now. Gotcha. D-G-I-N and G-L-I-N. That's correct. Okay. So, Angus, we've talked a lot about India, and for good reason. It's a very important emerging market. But obviously, emerging markets are much bigger than just one country. Where else are you seeing opportunities in EM today? Again, a little bit of a setup here. Uh, we're certainly in, in the strategy I work on, we are very focused on companies right and you know if a company happens to be in the country then we end up with an exposure to that country um now some countries you know to us present less risk than others so you'll tend to find we have more exposure in those countries um themselves but really you know our strategy is aimed to find extremely high quality business that will as i sort of highlighted in india will compound value over time um you know some of you know my personal favorite businesses uh you know, have relatively low compounding factors. So, you know, one is a, a bank that compounds at, you know, I think 13 or 14%. But, you know, if you own that 13 or 14% compounding value over 10 years, that should pay you 300% if you, 
careful about your multiples. So just a framework that that's what we're looking for. Um, so we find those really kind of all over. And I think the way we would think of macro risk or macro opportunity, so numerator and denominator, I'm not sure which, which way particularly to present it, you know, where do those country companies reside? Um, and they tend to reside in countries that have much more open policies, open, open regulatory structures. Um, so, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, um, Brazil is, is is definitely on an improving trend. Uh, Mexico, for sure. So, I think that that I, again, I'm not I'm not answering your question directly, but I'm I'm being very intentional. Why I'm not answering your question directly? We like a country that has the most of those kinds of companies in it and has the least sort of macro idiosyncratic uh, currency or regulatory risk, and that does put us in Brazil, Mexico, Indonesia, Philippines. We're uh, underweight in China now. We're obviously very constructive in, in, in India. Those are our broad thoughts. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia is emerging as a really interesting place to invest with some good exposures in Egypt. So the, I, I, we have actually surprisingly have quite decent exposures in, in Turkey. Um, so regardless of, of the currency situation, there are ways to navigate around that. So that that's broadly answers your question, but I, I needed to sort of put it in context. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. And you, you mentioned, Angus, that you're underweight China. That was obviously a powerhouse for many, many years. But over the last couple of years, investors have really soured on that country. Are you underweight, you know, because, you know, the growth situation is deteriorated? Is it more geopolitical? What's the reason for that? I mean, we get there from the bottom up. And, and, and I think the easy answer to that is that these sort of digital businesses, Alibaba, Tencent, you know, Meituan, have really started to run out of juice. Now, that's a combination of, of saturation, competition against each other. Um, and they're just not giving the returns they gave in the past, but they're still trading the multiples they traded in the past. So maybe think about that as the inverse of the thesis I just laid out for India. Like, you know, if your business was trading at a 20 times multiple for you know 25% growth, and you think that growth is going down to you know, 10%, that multiple should not still be at 20%. So we think there are a lot of risks out there for those kind of businesses going forward. Um, and we certainly scale back our, our exposures. But, you know, on the other side of that, there are I don't know, what I would call I don't know, structural compounding growth fallen angels in, in, in China. Um, you know, great businesses that are compounding value that are trading at insane multiples, um, two plus standard deviations cheaper than they ever have. So I think you would, there's no way you want to write China off as some kind of basket case uninvestable. But, you know, I think you've got to be patient for for multiples to mean revert. Um, and I think, you know, it will need some modification in, in policy to encourage you know, investors to pay those valuations. And, and another emerging market you touched on, Angus, was Turkey, obviously a, a roller coaster over there with the unorthodox policy. And then after the election, a shift back towards more conventional policy. Um, do you think there's room to run over there? Because the stock market has been doing quite well over the past year or so. I mean, it's, it's difficult to calibrate because you know, so much of how exciting returns look are based on local currency. So you strip that out. Um, it's still it's still decent. But I got to say, the first time I went to Turkey quite a while ago, um, having been investing specifically in Asia for, for quite a while, most of my career, I was astonished by 
how high quality the businesses are there, how good the management are, how focused they are, the business models. Um, so we've found a handful of business models there uh, that are fit that you know quality uh, construct, pay returns to minorities, um, but will benefit from a weaker currency. So you know one of them is a is a hospital company which focuses on on you know, medical tourism so you know as medical tourism relatively in turkey gets cheaper and it's a wonderful place and lovely people it's going to attract more so the businesses potentially grow quite quickly another one is a an auto manufacturer that manufactures for european brands predominantly so as the as the turkish currency depreciates you find that it's cheaper for you know renault or some of these guys to to manufacture in Turkey. So you know, they see their volumes go up quite significantly. So there are, you know, I, and I think I, this is sort of, again, interestingly where you've taken this conversation, which is, which is wonderful, which is you can't make top-down calls, I don't think, anywhere, but specifically EM. There's, there's always great opportunities from any outcome. Um, you know, if you think the Chinese population is aging and there's a demographic issue there, well, you buy you know, elderly care companies, you know, stuff like that. So I think it's about really sort of understanding the business and that's what we try to do here and 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 taking that understanding into deep rigorous analysis and where we find businesses that we believe will pay minorities real dollar value um, over time and, and the risk is it justifies that then those are the investments we take. So that that's really sort of very clearly what, what Turkey represents to us right now. That makes a ton of sense to me. Well, Angus, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, thank you for the invitation. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find this and all other Exchange Traded Fridays episodes on ETF.com or on any major podcast platform. See you next week.